and then we'll get to uh, Nehemiah chapter 10. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jared, again. I'm going to have like a whole convenience store of waters up here. That's awesome. Let's pray. God's so grateful for you, just all the songs that we sang uh, this morning. I pray that you would, just like Michelle um, just sang, that you would lead us to the cross, God. It's because of the cross uh, that we have hope, that we have life, that we have everlasting life, that we have redemption. And so, God, I pray that that would be stirred in our hearts this morning. Uh, you have a great name, a good name, a powerful name, that by it all men are, are saved. And so, God, I pray for that for us this morning. I pray that you would continue to lead us through this book, Nehemiah, of what it looks like that you desire to use your people uh, to build your uh, kingdom. And so lead us this morning, uh, guide us, we give you this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Nehemiah chapter 10 this morning. One of the jobs that I have is a counselor, and so I often get the question, uh, do people really want to change? Or do people really change? And how is it that, you know, you can have people come for counseling and we can see people over and over and over again. Uh, the question is, do people really have a desire to change? Do we have a desire to change? That's what this morning is all about. These people in Nehemiah chapter 10 have a true desire to change. And so for us this morning as God's people, do we have a desire to change? Do we have a desire to become more and more like Christ this morning? If you remember in Nehemiah chapter 8, Nehemiah chapter 8, the people of God came to Nehemiah and to Ezra and said to Ezra and Nehemiah, hey, we want to hear the word of God. And so they began to teach the word of God and to read the word of God over them. And if you remember in chapter 8, they read the word of God to God's people for six hours while the people of God remained standing. They had a desire for God's word. And then as Phil taught us last week, when we have a desire for God's word and we really begin to put God's word in our heart, there will always be true confession of sin. That is what God's word does. God's word, when it's read to us or we read it ourselves, God will illuminate in those places of our lives that we need to confess our sins to him. And that's what last week was about. Chapter 9 is all about God's uh, word being brought to God's people and God's people being brought back to God through confession of their sin. And here's the thing. Chapter 10 is so important because maybe you're like me. We go from spiritual high to spiritual high. I couldn't imagine those few moments in Nehemiah chapter 8, Nehemiah chapter 10. There's these spiritual highs that these people have gotten and then what happens the next day or the following day? I remember as a youth pastor, we'd go away to a retreat and all the kids would come back on a spiritual high. And, and then by the, that Friday, they were back doing the same things they had just said they weren't going to do over the week. And so students and you and I, we can ride the spiritual wave of the highs of experiencing God. And God's design for us is not to have spiritual highs, but it's to have spiritual consistency. God desires us to be in a loving relationship with him continually, not just riding the wave of the highs. 
oh man, that was a great service, or that was a great song, or that was a great message, or that was a great retreat, or that was a great missions trip. And we live, we look back in our lives and we see all these spiritual markers and they're just waves in our life. In Nehemiah chapter 10, are these people coming to God and saying to God, we don't want to ride the waves. We really do want life change. We want to change our lives. We don't want to live the way we've lived all that time before. We've just heard your word, God. We've just confessed our sin to you, God. And now, God, we really want a change in our life. We want to live our lives consistently with you. And that's what they say in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 28. Right? Well, that's kind of the camp out verse. It's in the latter half of the verse. It says, all who separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. They, in verse 38 of chapter 9, if Phil read it, I'll read it again. It said, because of all this, highlight that in your Bible. Because of all this, because of all what? the reading of God's word, and the confession of sins, because of all this, we make a firm covenant with you, God. So here in Nehemiah chapter 10, it's going to talk about what that covenant is. It's going to talk about the covenant of separating from the wicked people to the word of God. And so what is a covenant? We see covenants throughout the Bible. God is a covenantal God. The Old Testament is the Old Covenant. The New Testament is the New Covenant. But a covenant is the promises that God has given to God's people. If you look throughout the whole Old Testament, it's covenant after covenant after covenant after covenant. A covenant is simply this, an agreement between two parties involving mutual obligation. So God is saying to God's people, I'm going to make a promise to you, and I'm going to always do my promises. One of those promises God says to God's people is, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. One of those promises is God says, when you come to me and you surrender your life to me, you'll have everlasting life. Thank God for those promises. Thank God we have a God that makes covenant with us. But here's where it doesn't stop. We have to make covenants back to God. And that's what Nehemiah 10 is. Nehemiah 10 is about the people of God understanding the covenants of God and then them going back into relationship with God and saying, we're going to make a covenant with you, God. When you, when you join the church, you join the church through a covenant. That's what church membership is about. Church membership is not just about walking this aisle, talking to me, talking to our deacons, writing your name on a list. You're making a promise not only to us, but you're making a promise to God. When you enter into marriage, marriage is a covenantal relationship. It's not just simply walking in an aisle, hearing a pastor say these words. You're making a covenant. The, the ring that you wear on your finger is a demonstration of the covenant that you're making with, with your wife. You're, you're saying to your wife through the covenant of marriage, I promise never to leave you nor forsake you. It's the same covenant God made with us. So we're very covenantal people. But I think we live in a day and age that we don't really trust covenants or we just think there's something to be said. We don't really hold to our covenants. We see that in the church. We see that in the Christian community. 
marriage isn't really marriage anymore. It's just kind of two people coming together and hoping for the best. That's why divorce rate within the church is higher than the divorce rate outside the church because we don't really make and keep our promises any longer. And so what would it look like for us to be a people of God that just like God kept his promises with us, we keep our promises with God? What would this church look like if we really became a covenantal community that was committed to God and committed to one another? What would it look like? I think Nehemiah 10 is going to show us what that looks like. So first and foremost, we'll see in verses 1 through 27, uh, more just for the sake of my voice, I'm not going to read all those names. But we see four groups that we see made a commitment to God or a covenant to God. It said because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. And then in verse 1 of chapter 10, it says, on the seals are the names of, and then it goes through all these names. So here's the covenant that they've written out. And now here in verses 1 through 27 is the seal or them writing, saying, I'm promised to keep the covenant. So we see four groups that kept to the covenant or made a promise for the covenant. The first is the most important, I believe. The first people on the list, the first person on the list is Nehemiah. To keep a covenant with God, it starts with the leaders of God. You would not want me as the leader not to keep a covenant with God or a covenant with you, correct? So when it comes to making a covenant with God as your pastor, I'm making a covenant to God to be your shepherd and to lead you in the way that God is calling me to lead us as a group. That's what Nehemiah was saying here. He said in this very verse, I promise to you as the leader, as the governor, to lead you to the truths of God. That's the covenant. When, you, when we read the covenant, he's saying, I'm going to do this in my life, and I'm going to call you to do this in your life. So that's the first one, leaders. The second one is the priest. We see that in verse 8. The priest, or the deacons, if you will. You don't want you, our deacons, not to be in covenantal relationship with the God of the universe, amen, or to lead the church in the way that God would call us the leaders and the deacons to lead the church, correct? And so we are saying to you as your leaders, hey, we're making a covenant with God to lead you, the people of God, to the truths of God so that God's truth will lead us to confession which will lead us into an everlasting life, an ongoing relationship with God. That's what it means when we say to you, our mission here at Powell's Chapel is to know him and to make him known. It's very simple. That's our promise to you. That's our covenant with you. We, as your leaders and your deacons, will do everything in our power to, to explain the truths of God so that you will fully know God, and in fully knowing God, you'll be equipped to go in making God known. That's what Ephesians 4 says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So we're going to, everything that we do will come out of this. It will not be my best thinking. It'll be the words of God. The next thing we see are the Levites. They're just those who kept the law of God. And the last one I think is the most challenging of all. 
It's the heads of the families. It's the husbands. I'm speaking to you men this morning. You men lead not only the church, but you must lead your families. Your families rise and fall on you and what covenant you've made with your family before God. That's what these men said. They said, we as the leaders of our household will make a covenant with God and making a covenant with God, we'll do everything we can to lead our families. I think that's one of the saddest parts in the church, not Powell's Chapel, but the church universal. The men of God are no longer leading families and we have just chaos. We're in the world we're in, the chaotic world we're in, because Satan has attacked the men. If Satan wins the men, Satan wins the family. If Satan wins the families, we no longer have a firm foundation. And so, men, I'm calling on you to make a covenant with God to lead your families well. Because if you lead your families well, it's what Paul says, if you can lead your family, you can lead the church. And if we can lead the church and we can lead our families, we'll begin to really make a revolution and a revival in our communities. And men, it starts with us. It does not start with your spouse. It does not start with your children. Men, it starts with you. It starts with me. Do I live in a godly relationship with a holy God? Can I say to God, man, these are the things that I want my life to be marked with. It starts with us men. If we're going to have the church God desires, men, it will start with us. It won't start with a youth group. It won't start with a children's ministry. It won't start with a men's ministry. It will start with you and me on our face before a holy God, crying out to God to lead us, to lead me as I lead my, my family, Tennyson and Cedar, and lead the church. So it's important. This list of names is so important. We don't see one female in the whole list. The men of the community said to one another, let's lead our community. We make a commitment to lead our community. And so that's who signed the covenant. That's who signed the promise. And now we'll look at the curse and the oath. We'll look at the promise and we'll look at the curse that comes with the promise. Because whenever you make a covenant with God, not only are you making a promise to God, but you're saying to God, if I don't make this promise, then there has to be curses on me. That's why we have a loving God and a justice God. We have to have the love of God and we have to have the wrath of God. And so we're saying to God, if I don't make this covenant, if I don't keep my promise, then I'm inviting you, God, to discipline me. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. We see what the covenant is in verse 28. It says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all, the whole community in Nehemiah's day, all of them came together to make this covenant, this promise who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. Here's what's important. When we separate ourselves from something, we must attach ourselves to something. We say that one more time. 
the people of God separating themselves from the wickedness of God, but they didn't stop there. In separating themselves from the wickedness of God, they turned and they attached themselves to the word of God. It's the idea of mortification and vivification. Mortification is I'm going to put the things to death in my life that rob me of my affections for a holy God. But I'm not going to stop there. Then when I put the things to death that are in my life that rob me of a loving relationship with God, I'm going to then put the things in place that will stir my affections for God. So we can have confession all day long. So we could have chapter 9 all day long. But if we don't have chapter 10, there will be no life transformation. See, they could continue to confess their sins, but they don't just confess their sins and then make a promise to God not to go back to their sin. They're going back to their sin. It's not that we have to have something to say no to. We must also have something to say yes to. And that's what these people said. We're going to say no to the worldly things that are all around us, and we're going to say yes to God. We're going to say yes to the truths of God. And over and over in this passage, we see that they say, I'm going to say no to the sin, and I'm going to say yes to the word of God. They make a commitment to the word of God. Because making a commitment to the word of God will stir their affections for God. In verse 28, we see they will obey God's law. Verse 29, they will follow God's law. Verse 29, they will obey the commandments, the statutes, the the precepts of God. Verse 34, they will obey the written law of God. Verse 36, they will prescribe, they will be prescribed to the law of God. They will do the things of God. They say throughout these next few verses, all that we're going to say no to, we're going to turn and say yes to this. It's what David says in Psalm 119.11, I've stored up in your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You you see, God's word is what reveals what sin is to us. You see, if I don't know God's word, then I won't know what sin is. If I don't know what sin is, I'll continue to go on in my sin. You see, if all I do is enter into this world and I let the world define what sin is, then I'm in trouble. Because 50 years ago, the world would have said homosexuality was a sin. Today, we're we're praising it on the the White House. A hundred years ago, we would have said abortion is sin, and now we're saying, no, it's women's rights. You see, if I just let the world dictate to me what sin is and what sin isn't, there is always a moving target for what the world said sin is. But I promise this, God's word is not a moving target for what sin is. It is very black and white. Therefore, I must treasure it in my heart that I might not sin against God. And if I don't sin against God, then I'll live a holy life. See, God's holiness is dictated by this, not whether my neighbor's holy or not holy. You see, if I go to China, I'm a really tall person in China. If I go to China, I'm going to look really tall. And so in China, I'm going to look like a giant. And so I'm going to look at, if I'm in China, I'm going to think, man, I am something I'm really not. I'm a giant. Now, I go to Africa, and I go to the tribe in Africa, that they're all over seven feet. I'm going to look like a midget. 
so I can go different places in the world and hear what sin is and what sin isn't. But if I let the world be the gauge of what sin is and sin in it, it's always a moving target. So I must say to myself, I got to make a commitment to God's word. If I make a commitment to God's word, I will know what sin is and what sin is not. See, just because we go to the movies and just because the movies is rated R, that doesn't make it less sin than a PG movie. God's word will tell us what's the healthiest thing to put into our minds. But I'll only know that if I saturate myself in God's word. And so what the people of God said, we're going to make a covenant to God to know God's word. What if Powell's Chapel was marked and known that, man, those people know the word of God? What if that was our marker? What if our marker wasn't that we're 141 years old? Or what if our marker wasn't that they're the church at on Powell's Chapel? What if we were the church known, man, those people at Powell's Chapel, they know the word of God. What if that was what made us stood out in this community? And so then in the rest of the passage, they said we're going to know God's word. And knowing God's word, these are the promises or these are the obligations that we're going to stick to. So we can have those covenants. We can say, man, I'm going to do this all day. But if I don't come back around and say, this is how I'm going to do it, then I'm in trouble. See, I can say I want to be godly all day. I want to live a life of holiness all day. And that sounds good until I tell you how I'm going to do it. And so now the people say, hey, we're going to be committed to God's word and being committed to God's word. This is what it's tangibly going to look like in our life. The first one is they say, we're going to make a commitment to God's word. We're going to get back to God's word. And they say, uh, in verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. The very first thing they say is that we will not intermarry. And let me say this loud and clear. This has nothing to do with race. This is not a, a, about a race thing. It's not saying, hey, we're not going to marry the, the, the race that's different than us. What this verse talks about, what all of God's word talks about when it comes to intermarrying is, hey, we are not going to pollute the faith that God has put into us. We're going to remain holy, and the way we're going to remain holy is we're not going to invite outside people that have a love for other gods into a relationship with us who love a holy God. It's not about race. It's about holiness. It's about faith. It's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 6 says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? I'm going to take it a step further. We see this in the Bible. God's word talks about being unequally yoked amongst believer and believer. See, it's not just simply saying to another person, yes, I know God. Does their life show that they know God? See, the, 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 the benchmark when I go and I met Jenny, the benchmark was, wasn't, hey, does she know Jesus? 
There's a lot of people that say they know Jesus, but they do not live a life of holiness. And so I just stop simply at, hey, they know Jesus. No, what it means to be unequally yoked is, is Jenny, was Jenny pursuing the Lord with all of her heart, mind, soul, and strength? That's the benchmark. Not being a believer, not the words, I'm a believer. It's their lifestyle match up with what they say. Because you know, as married people, and I learned this the hard way. I come from the city. I'm a city boy, and I married a country girl. And her countryness can invade the house more than my cityness invades the house, if you know what I mean. But how much more so if I attach myself to an unbeliever? The likelihood of them coming to know Christ is very slim. Because what will tend to happen is they'll say to one another, you live your way, I'll live my way. I don't want your beliefs to mess up my beliefs. And then what happens? You have children, and one, one parent loves the Lord, one parent doesn't love the Lord, then the child's in conflict. What happens if the child's in conflict? The child is going to live chaotically spiritually because they'll have no direction. It's what was going on. What happened was when Jesus said and Paul says and God says, don't intermarry, what was happening is they were beginning to marry other people that they didn't know the language. And so they couldn't even speak to their children the truths of God because one parent would speak the truths of God and the other parent would speak the things of Moloch or Balaam and the kid would be totally confused. So the very first thing was, hey, we're not going to pollute our faith. What does that look like for us? What would it look like for us as a church not to pollute our faith? What are the things God may be saying to us to say no to, that we say yes to? The second one is this, to keep the Sabbath, to be the Sabbath. See that over and over in the text, three things we see. We're talking about the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, and canceling debt. What was happening for them when they would say, yeah, we're not working on Sundays. We're not working on the holy day. But, but the people around them, the idolaters would come and buy their food. And then in the year, the, the year of the Sabbath, every seven years, the seventh year, they'd take off from doing anything on the ground. They'd let their ground rest. And then that seventh year also, they'd cancel debt. So what they're saying is, we're going to trust God. We're, we're, it's not about the Sabbath. It's not about the Sabbath year. It's not about canceling debt. If you fast forward to us, Paul tells us, it's just about keeping a day holy to God. It's not about being legalistic. It's saying, will we keep a day, will we keep things holy to God? You see, it comes back to one thing. You see, the people of that day had to trust God would provide for them. Think about you and I. There's always something else to be done, correct? There's always something else to do. I could leave here today and do something else. I could leave here today and go prepare for next Sunday. I could leave here today and prepare for tomorrow. But why I trust God for tomorrow, 
and will I trust God for next Sunday in order that I can have rest and rest with him alone? So this is way more about trust than it is about taking a Sabbath. It's, will I trust God? Will you trust God? That's what the people are saying. We've got to get back to trusting God that he'll provide everything for us because we've gone away from that. Do we trust God? Do we, the church, trust God? Or do we trust our bank account? Do we really trust God as a church? The last one, the next several verses are all about supporting the temple. Over and over and over in this passage, we see different ways that the people said they're going to go back and support the temple through uh, tithe and offering, through giving, through service. And here's the deal. It's not about your tithe. It's not about your offering. It's not about your giving. It's not about your service here. It's simply these people got back to, hey, we've got to get to a place that we can worship God as a community. And so therefore, they made a commitment to do everything they could to provide a place where they could come and communally worship a holy God. God does not care about your money. God does not care about your time. The thing God cares about, are we giving with a heart that always brings us back to a place of worship? Is all the things that we do here at Powell's Chapel, even here in a few moments, we're going to leave here and we're going to talk about, we're going to brainstorm about children in our youth group. But it ought not to be about the things that we want to provide for them. VBS, the movie nights, the, the workshops, all the things that we do. All the things that we do have to point back to the mission. The mission is to know him and to make him known. Our whole sole purpose, this, this whole thing that we do, is to provide a place that we can come and communally worship God together. There's a point of the church. So many people say, well, I can go worship at home. I can go worship at Starbucks. No, God designed the church that we would come as God's people and worship together. I need Jared to be fully in it with me so that I can worship God wholly. I need Jared to help me worship. I need Jerry to help me worship. I need Patty. I need Sharon. I need everyone in this church to come together to help me worship. The same way that you need me to help you worship. But it will go back to what is my commitment to God, to God's word, and to worship. Because when I make a commitment to God, I make a commitment to worship, then my preferences no longer matter. Because what matters is my worship to a holy God and to be in a community that worships a holy God what John tells us in John 13. By the way that you love one another, by the way that you worship, by the way that you interact with one another, the world will know that you're my disciples. That's what the people of God here in Nehemiah said. We need to get to a place that we can worship God, and in worshiping God, we can be a demonstration of what God looks like to a lost world. That's their whole desire, is that the people outside the walls would hear and see the people of God worshiping and want to know what they were worshiping, and then they'd have an avenue to talk about what the God of the universe really is.
I love this quote. It says this. What you live for is what gives meaning to everything else in your life. These old covenant Israelites are saying, we live for the Lord. That dictated who they marry. That dictated their calendars and what they look like. That dictated what they cared for the most. Sacred place in their society, the temple. We live for the Lord. Can that be said about us? Do we live for the Lord? And does the Lord dictate everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think? Here's how I'd like to end. What is our response to this message? The first one is, do I have faith in Jesus? The ultimate covenant, Christ himself. Christ is our commitment. Do I have a faith in Christ, in Christ alone? Do I trust in Jesus who embodies the new covenant? And lastly, do I rest in Jesus that Jesus will fulfill the covenant that he's promised to us? Do I have faith in Christ? Do I live for Christ? Do I trust Christ? And do I rest in Christ? Let us pray. Jesus, I pray that you would mark us here at Powell's Chapel as a covenantal church, that we made a commitment to you and you alone, that, God, we would live for you in all that we do, all that we say, all that we think. God, that will start with our surrender to you. I pray that you would allow us this morning to surrender to you. God, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning that there's something in their life that's holding them back in their covenantal relationship with you, that this morning they would be like the people of Nehemiah, that they would have heard the words and they'd come to repentance and they'd make a commitment to you, a covenant to you, to live all the days of their life marked with holiness and godliness. God, I pray if there's anyone here that's never trusted you as their Savior, that this morning would be the morning that you'd call them to yourself. They'd have a faith in you, they have a trust in you, and they'd rest in you. God, continue to grow this church. Let us passionately fall in love with your word, God. And let your word continue to bring Conviction. Continue to bring confession that would lead us to you. You're a great God. You're doing amazing things. Pray this in the holy name of Christ Jesus. Amen.